Hey, welcome to Agent Provocateur. How to be an agent part two, or so you want to be an agent, I guess. And Alan, um, before we get into that, uh, something that came up, I noticed on your Twitter account this week, and it's something that we've we've talked about. I've talked about it on the Steve Dangle podcast a bunch of times. It's the fact that we have a ton of teams who are circumventing the cap legally, um, and it raises the issue of whether a hard cap is really even in effect, and if there aren't better options out there like a luxury tax. I know luxury tax freaks people out because um, they've seen what happens in the MLB with it. Let's start with LTI. Um, you know, can you can you explain for the layman, for for people like me, uh, LTI from the player's side, from the agent side, how does it work, and how are teams using it to circumvent the cap? Right. So LTI is long term uh, injury. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's referred to as LTI or LTIR, long term uh, injured reserve, and for a player certified by the team's medical staff to uh, be injured uh, and unable to play to the extent of missing 10 games, the next 10 games, or 24 calendar days is the definition within the CBA, that player then goes on LTI. While on LTI, his a, that player's AAV can be used to, if the team is at the cap, which this year is 82.5 million, Mm -hmm. that team could now exceed the salary cap, the upper limit of the cap, by uh, the amount of uh, the player's AAV on injured reserve. So that's the definition. So um, you take a team like Tampa, Mm -hmm. last year Stanley Cup winner, uh, when uh, Kucherov came off LTI, At the start of the playoffs, their actual payroll uh, by AAV was over $93 million. Mm -hmm. So it causes amongst the other teams in the league, you hear in conversations, general managers, very unhappy that other teams, there are a few teams that are able to spend to that amount. Obviously, you need to have a commitment from ownership to be able to go there. And uh, this year right now uh, with Vegas, with Stone going on LTI, Eichel being activated. um, You've got um, also Martinez is on LTI. So that's uh, for you. You're in the high 90s right now, mid to high 90s with Vegas's uh, payroll. They're spending the second most amount of money in the league. Right. So um, that bleeds into the next real issue to discuss because they're interrelated. Why not have a luxury tax? Something that I've advocated for. It was part of uh, the CBA negotiations back in uh, 94, 95. Hmm. It was actually back in the negotiations there. It was a central aspect of the NHLPA's position uh, during the lockout in 2004, 2005, Gary advocated for a triple hard cap system with no ability to go over uh, the upper limit other than through something like LTI. It's been uh, used more extensively um, in the last few years than it has been uh, since 
2005, but a luxury tax with meaningful revenue sharing makes so much more sense for the NHL right now. There are approximately 18, 19 teams that are at the upper limit. Number of teams are into LTI right now. If you just allow teams to spend over the upper limit, but pay a tax for um, each threshold, whether it's two and a half million over the upper limit, they pay a 25% tax. Mm-hmm. Five million over the upper limit between two and a half and five million, you pay a 50% tax. Five million to seven and a half million, you pay a 75% tax. Seven and a half million to 10 million, you pay a hundred percent tax. You're you're allowing teams have the commitment from ownership to spend to that level, but the cap is preventing them from doing it. All with the um, you know the league waving the flag of uh, competitive balance, and we can't let the big markets outspend the small markets, and that argument is a total fallacy because the floor is 60 million. So you had last year, some teams, the smaller markets, you know, just hitting the floor Mm -hmm. during the season, but the Tampas of the world were at 93 million. Right. Who won the Stanley cup? Tampa. With With their 93 million. Yes. Yeah. Right. So you've got a, a 30 plus million variance. Where's the competitive balance? The whole cost certainty Gary Bettman argument is an illusion. It's been his great magic trick that he's played on the fans and the media, brainwashing them since 2005. And, and on Twitter, I see all the time competitive balance. We can't have a tax. We need the cap competitive balance you've been brainwashed you've been brainwashed it doesn't exist you're always going to have the bigger markets have the financial wherewithal and the power to be able to go out there and spend why not let them spend what they already want to spend why should we prevent them from doing that if they can then pay a tax that they're willing to pay. And you have that tax going to the smaller markets mm-hmm. as their revenue share. Because right? right now that LTIR space is not being taxed, correct? That's right. It's not. So what is the tax based on? What's the what's the equalization payment based on currently? Currently, there's a formula in the CBA um, where um a certain number of teams who fit within a certain uh, demographic of uh, uh, attendance, um, size of the market, and mm-hmm. so forth, um, qualify for revenue sharing. And, and there is uh, a certain amount that goes into the pot and then gets distributed. But it is not a meaningful number. It mm-hmm. never has been because NHL owners don't want to support their brethren who are billionaires 
but not willing to put that money into their payroll. Right. Right. They're billionaires. I mean, every NHL owner is is technically a billionaire when we're we're talking about revenue share money of five million, six million, seven million dollars a year. Yeah, it's a drop in the bucket. It's a drop in the bucket. But now what people don't understand is that by having a luxury tax, the system in and of itself becomes self-regulating. Right? Because teams know if they're spending to a certain level, the money they're spending is going to trigger the tax, which is then going to their competitors, which they hate. So it becomes in the um, analysis, mm-hmm. in the thinking process of a club, if we spend to this level, we get to retain our players, because one of the biggest issues with the cap is it forces teams that otherwise would be willing to sign and retain their players. It forces them to trade players, good players, sometimes some of their best players, or allow them to go to free agency because they don't have the cap space to keep the team together. Think Chicago Blackhawks. Mm-hmm. After being successful, think Tampa Bay Lightning in a year. Anytime a team gets really successful, they are then faced with being capped out a year or two down the road after rewarding the players that helped them get to the finals, win a cup. And now they've got to trade some of their best players away. Is that good for hockey? No, it's not. Is it good for the NHL? No, it's the it, it's one of the only sports that forces teams to get rid of good players. They otherwise they have the money to sign them. They want to sign them, but they don't have the cap space to sign them. That's just plain wrong. And a tax would alleviate that problem. But the NHL, primarily Gary Bettman, has been adamant that he doesn't ever want to open the system up to let teams even retain their stars. You know? no. and, and one other thing, in, in some sports, you have you know, a bird exception mm-hmm. where you can franchise tag a player or you can uh, spend the money on a player that you've drafted but not a player that you've traded for. There are different ways to get to the same point. The, point, the, 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 the real import of this is Gary Bettman won't allow or even consider the players to go down that road. And it's bad for hockey. It's bad for the NHL. It's bad for the fans and the people who are, you know, but we need this competitive balance. Come on. Look well, at the, look at the so, situation. Well, let's let's talk about competitive balance just for a moment before we get into this. And I know we got to wrap this up, but Alan, and we'll 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 come back to this. This is something we're absolutely going to cover more and more as Agent Provocateur uh, goes on. One of the things that they talk about is, well, I'm, I'm a small market fan. I'm a fan in Nashville. I'm a fan in Arizona. I'm a fan in, uh, you know, name your city. I'm a fan in a lot of the Canadian cities. A lot of Canadians get freaked out about this because we saw two Canadian teams go south in the 90s. I'm a fan of this team. 
And I know the Torontos, the Bostons, the New Yorks, the Phillies, they're all going to be able to spend ballistic money. Tampa Bay now too, obviously. Um, They're going to spend crazy, crazy money. Um, I'm concerned that my team will not be able to compete. Alan, since the hard cap was instituted, what teams have done the best? And have you seen, have we seen a, a leveling off of the field in terms of parity in the NHL, which they seem to want to always have? Uh, I don't think we have any parity in the NHL. When you look at um, the bigger markets who consistently seem to win the cup every year, we have exceptions. There have been exceptions. Uh, You know, hockey is, is more than just the cost of your payroll per se. There's lots of other factors that go into it. But when you look at who's won the cup since 2005 and, and you look at, the uh, Chicago's, the Los Angeles's, the teams that have won um, multiple cups. Uh, and I consider Tampa, you know, yes, it's not a, a huge market, but they have one of the richest owners mm-hmm. um, in the NHL, 100% committed to spending what it takes to win. So I don't consider that a small market. Right. Right. You know, we're talking about teams that traditionally, you mentioned some of them, that have traditionally been more towards the floor mm-hmm. than, than towards the top of the upper limit. So I think that when you, when you look at that, right, like I said before, there is an illusion. The NHL sells the illusion of parity to justify the salary cap. Why do we have a cap? What is the primary reason why Gary Bettman and the NHL owners, you know, pushed so hard for a cap? The salary cap is directly related to the value of NHL franchises. Mm. And what you saw is once we had the cap instituted in 2005, uh, at first it was slower, but there was a slow, steady rise. And the value of franchises, right? You've now been able to control your cost of labor. And now as um, more revenue comes in, the value of the underlying business is worth more. Mm-hmm. And but, but what you've seen the last uh, five years has been an explosion of franchise values and under this current CBA, because of the pandemic, we might have a flat cap for four to five years to pay off the escrow debt mm-hmm. that accumulated over the last two years, right? Yeah. So, so, yes, the players received more money up front than the 50-50 split of HRR in the CBA, and that money is now going to be paid back over a number of years to equalize again completely at 50-50. But the underlying value of franchises have exploded. They've exploded. And the players don't share in that at all. And that's why we have a salary cap. There it is. So let's get into, so you want to be an agent, an NHL agent, part two with the one and only Alan Walsh. Thank you. One last thing. Oh, sorry. I'd like to wish a very happy birthday 
to my great friend, Jeff Applebaum, and to my great friend, Daniel Baker, who both share a birthday on the same day uh, and are both big fans of the podcast. So I just wanted to give them a little shout out. Happy birthday to them. I guess that takes us to, and, and Steve always says this on the, on the podcast, you know, when there's, um, when there's a contract negotiation with an RFA and it's going all summer long, and especially in Leafland, you know, a couple of years ago with Nylander and Marner and some other c- contracts, there was some anxiety inducing moments. And Steve would always say, what the hell do these people do all day? <laughs> what are they doing all day, these agents and these general managers? So what does an agent actually do? What's your day-to-day look like? Um, my day-to-day is, is usually pretty uh, chaotic and hectic. Uh, I personally believe in uh, trying to touch as many players as I can, whether by text or phone call. Um, you sort of get into the rhythm, you know, East Coast, when guys are heading to the rink, many times they'll pick up the phone and call, um, you know, in the mornings for practice. Some guys um, don't like to be contacted at all on game day. Mm-hmm. They just focus on the game. You get to know what players' preferences are. Some players are in the hotel uh, in the afternoon, and they're completely open to to talking, and they, whether it's game day or not. But you kind of learn that over time. Mm-hmm. But in between talking to players and and dealing with any issues of the day, you know, because part of what we do is I'm walking around all day with a fire hose on my back and I'm just putting out different fires here and there. (laughs) So some days you feel more like a fireman than an agent, but that's part of the job description. Um, You know, depending on the time of year, you're preparing negotiation files. You could be working on potential arbitrations. You're managing your business. That's talking to people who you're working with all over the world. I'll have conference calls with people and Zoom calls with people in Czech Republic and different parts of Europe and all over Canada and the people that we work with. Um, there's um, a lot of administrative work that goes into uh, uh, helping to run an agency. Um, so there's there's a whole host of different things in that world. And then, of course, um, and, and you recall, we had Frank Zecca on as a guest early on in, in the genesis of Agent Provocateur, mm-hmm. but um, I deal very closely with the people in financial services working on the financial side, and the monthly summaries are always getting prepared, and I always review them, and then we review them with the clients, and uh, there's a lot of that too, just keeping players you know, always on track financially and career-wise with what the plan is, whether it's a budget on the financial side and the monthly uh, summaries or on the hockey side. Hey, here was our plan in the summer. Here's where we were in September, October. Here's where we are now. And talk a little bit about the plan going forward. You know, I don't believe in just letting things happen by happenstance, by chance. I think it's very important to have a plan, to present a plan to together agree on a, on a step forward. And that takes a, you know, a lot of time. 
Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of effort. It's sometimes better to sit with players face to face when you're talking about their careers. Um, So there's, there's all of that. And there's other things, more, more nuanced stuff, like making sure everybody's uh, career ending disability insurance is up to date and, uh, and, and, and under review, usually do that you know, just before training camp starts where there's a bit of a scramble, making sure everybody's got their policies renewed. And it's a very critical aspect to the representation of players. Um, So depending on the month, depending on where we are in the season, uh, your days vary a little bit, um, but there isn't a lot of downtime and there's not a lot of time where you're not doing anything. And then of course, starting in, in California, uh, 4 p.m. is when the games start being played. And that's when I'm starting to watch clients play both uh, NHL, American League, uh, mm-hmm. up on the different screens and keeping an eye on their progress. And, and you know, when we were kind of talking about outlining the show, obviously it's very different when you're talking about a junior and then, or NCAA uh, player versus what it would be in the AHL, the NHL, or the ECHL. So, so you know, when you're when you're dealing with a a, a player that was, you know, Mark Andre Fleury's age when you met him, when he went to Cape Breton, he was 16, I think. Uh, what what kind of things go into the day to day of managing a junior player? Um, what what you want to do is you want to establish the um, personal connection with the player, um, while at the same time staying out of the way. Okay. Uh, and, and understand that it's junior hockey. The business is going to become much more of a business pretty soon. Mm-hmm. You try to let the players enjoy the game. And basically what I did in, in, in Mark's draft year was try to keep as much of the noise about being a highly touted prospect you know, a goaltender, especially after the World Juniors that year, after he had that outstanding World Juniors uh, in Halifax, um, where he was he was sick and out and on the bench, and then uh, Team Canada's goalie got pulled and he came in, and the fans were all chanting "Flurry, Flurry, Flurry," and they ended up winning. And um, I think it was important after that when people started talking about him as the number one overall pick, or at least in that discussion to try to shield him from as much of the, the craziness, the chaos, the noise, and let him just go out and play hockey and stop the puck. And, and um, you know, by the time we got to the draft, uh, there had already been a, a, a real good bond that had developed between us, but I tried to, shield him from as much as I could. And then by the time we got to the draft is when, okay, here it's happening. You know, the trade happened. You're going to go number one overall, but now it's important to understand that it's now become a business. Right. And then the Mario Lemieux story. Right. <laughs> now, how do you help a, a player make a decision, Alan, as an agent between uh, junior and the NCAA? Well, everybody's different. And mm-hmm. for some players, uh, the better route for them to go is to play major junior. And for others, the the better route for them as a, as a player and as a person is to go NCAA. And I always saw my role 
is in helping the player and his family discover what route is best for them. And what what may be best for John may not be what's best for Tommy. And, um, and, and my role was to bring them all the information I could possibly bring them so they could process it and say, you know, ask a lot of questions, talk to a lot of different people and say, you know what, now that we've had all of this information to consider, Mm -hmm. and now that we've talked about it and met about it, and we've asked you questions, you've asked us questions, we've talked to other people, you know, this is the direction we want to go in, you know, but the decision has to come from them. And your job is to to facilitate that decision by by giving them all the information they need to come to that conclusion. So there is no right or wrong answer. It's just it's just person to person. You got to make that call. Exactly. And 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 again, everybody's different. And when it comes to uh, and and I can call myself on this one, you know, there's there's different kinds of hockey players, and the players that you're dealing with, Alan, are the players that have been the best players in every league on every team they've ever dealt with, right? Yep. And that can come with some players do it with a dogged determination. Some are just naturally gifted. They walk in, they put on skates, and it's like magic. Um, but when you get them into things like summer training, you know, they're used to being outside. I, how do you how do you how do you focus a player and go you know like I know it's summer and I know you want to be outside but you need to be on the dry land you need to be talking to to Paul up in Montreal you need to be you know this is your eating plan this is what you need to do how as an agent do you encourage that you know because some some need a little bit more of a I think a, a cattle prod than than others yeah I, I find that um, uh, especially with the younger players when they're you know 16 17. They're, they're usually super motivated and there isn't much need to, to push them. If, if, if you have a 16-year-old that doesn't want to train and he's not taking his time in the gym seriously, and you've had a few conversations with him about how important it is to the, you want to be a player, this mm-hmm. is critical to you becoming the player you want to be. And if he just doesn't have that in him, you know, it's a it's a great predictor on how far that player is going to go down the road, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and 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 you do see that sometimes. You do see that sometimes where I'll get a call and be like, "Alan, uh, the player showed up 15 minutes late." You know, and if you show up. You know, it, what's the saying? If you're if if you're five minutes early, you're 10 minutes late. Yep. Um, you, you know, you show up to the gym to work out with Paul, you better show up 10 to 15 minutes before your workout, not five minutes before, because he'll tell you to turn around and, and take off and come back again tomorrow, <laughs> you know, and that's the kind of, um, I think structure is very important for young people to have. And, uh, and I fully support that. I think that, um, working closely with parents and working closely with younger players. Um, the, the, the key is to give them all the tools and all the information they need from nutrition, from uh, off ice training on ice training in the summer, 
uh, our training camps have been amazing tools to help players uh, do what's necessary for each one of them to then get ready for the next season, whether it's put on weight, whether it's drop weights, whether it's increase VO2 max, get stronger. Um, you know, everybody's got a different need, a different plan, and we're able to, to do that and, and do it well. And, and it's a critical aspect to the overall represent, representation of players, especially younger players. Now, a lot of people are really interested in, especially if you want to become an agent, what it's like when they turn pro and you're negotiating contracts. Um, obviously, you've got your entry level. You got to get them ready to make money on that level. And, we're, and if, we, if we refer back to the uh, earlier episode, which you mentioned, players only take home about 30% of the actual sticker price of what they make on their contracts, right? It's about 30% right. after everything's out the window, taxes and everything. Um, you have to set up bank accounts. Uh, what What's the first thing you do? You got an 18-year-old. They just signed a, you know, a three-year rookie deal. What then? First thing I do is I let the player know that with his entry level contract, well, it's a great moment to, to sign that contract. And we always see people posting on Instagram, a picture of the player with his pen in his hand and the contracts flipped open in the last page, signing his name. It, it, it's a great moment, but what that does. And what I say to players and their parents, is that I just want to put this into perspective. What that contract has now done is it's put you on the starting line of getting to the NHL. You are today so far away from actually playing in the NHL. I don't care that you've been drafted in the first round. I don't care that you've just signed your NHL contract for three years. You are now only on the starting line. And you need to realize how far that road is to get from putting your name on that piece of paper to not just making it to the NHL to play a game or to play 40 games or to play 50 games, but the goal is to have a meaningful career in the NHL. That's the goal. Mm -hmm. and, and you need to have players focused on the goal, not, hey, I've signed my contract I've arrived. I'm here. I've made it. You the work begins made, now. You haven't made anything yet. You know, it's a two-way contract. The maximum salary in the American League under the CBA for an entry-level contract is $80,000 a year. So basically, when a player signs that contract, between signing bonus, and uh, which is capped at $92,500, 80,000 American League salary. When you see the number one overall pick in the NHL draft signed his contract, the only money he's been guaranteed is about $180,000 a year for three years from number That's one overall. Look at that fact from the days of Alexander Daig and, and Eric Lindros. Um, who signed huge one-way deals uh, after being drafted number one overall, the number one overall pick in the NHL draft when he signs his contract is signing a two-way deal, and the only money guaranteed is about $180,000 a year. 
Wow. That's nothing. I mean, it's a lot, but it's, you know, relative, like you're talking about the probably top 1% of 1% in skill percentile in the world, $180,000 to start. Right. People don't think about that. And that's between signing bonus and American league salary. Now, um, you, you obviously have to help with budgets. We've discussed that before, you know, as an agent, you're discussing this with an 18 year old, Hey, uh, try not to buy a car that's too expensive or, you know, try not to lease a place that's too expensive. What kinds of things like when you're, when you're entering that sort of conversation, what do you say? Hey, listen, you've only got 180 grand here, max. You got to live within that means. Is that a difficult conversation to have? Uh, it's not because I find players, young players, especially, and their parents, because it's a conversation we have with the parents as well in most situations, uh, are very interested and engaged in that discussion. But remember, in, um, in the NHL, players are paid from the first day of the regular season to the last day of the regular season. And the player receives all his compensation for the year salary between the first day and the last day. So the first payroll period on an, in a normal season is October 15. And the last payroll period is April 30th. Hmm. So when players get their last paycheck of the season, April 30th, they need to have enough cash on hand to support their living from April 30th until the next paycheck they get, which is October 15th. So if you're making, you know, uh, $80,000 salary in the American Hockey League and you think, okay, I'm making $80,000 a year. And from the first day of the season to the last day of the season, you've spent through after tax all that $80,000 you're now broke and you have no money to live from April 30th until October. And believe me, after April 30th, if you have no money, it's a long time <laughs> until wow. October 15. You know, play. And, and what I tell players that is we, we plan on this together. Mm-hmm. We're going to cash flow this out with you with a budget showing you month to month to month to month how much cash you're going to need on hand at the end of the year to get you through your summer, right? For young guys, especially. Now, um, obviously, if you have players in the NHL making uh, big, big money, mm-hmm. you're, you're not as worried. You're not worried about players running out of money in the summer, but you do dedicate money towards uh, investments, you do dedicate, you know, this is the, the nut that we have every month from, you know, uh, if, if there's mortgage payments and car payments and insurance payments and school payments, whatever it may be. And, and then you need to have a cash flow plan to get even players making big money, mm-hmm. you know, from April to October when the paychecks start again. And that's the magic and brilliance of Frank Zecca and his team who sit with the players and their families or the players when they're, you know, players and their wives um, later on in life and, and do this kind of intricate planning. 
So then, you know, you get to a, a player that's perhaps a little bit older. They've made it. They're the, what is it? 25% that made it past their first contract, right? They're into the second one, but you can in, you know, a couple of contracts in be into salary arbitration. And I've heard salary arbitration is painful because essentially the team is coming to the table and saying, here's all the reasons why you shouldn't make the money that you think you're worth. So they're pointing out all the bad stuff. Um, and your job, Alan, is to go to the table and go, here's why they should make all the money that we're asking for. How do you prep a player for that? How do you make sure feelings don't get hurt? Because we have seen arbitration in multiple sports ruin a relationship between a player and a team. What's the best way to prep a player for that? Well, if you look at the uh, NHL, uh, very, very few cases actually go from being filed uh, as an arbitration case to actually being heard, to have a hearing, and ultimately to a decision. I think in the last three or four off seasons combined, we may have had only one or two cases that actually went all the way to hearing with a result. Um, it's, it's very rare. I'd say right now, um, 97 to 98% of all arbitration filings, uh, settle where the, the agent, the player and the club come to an agreement before the date of the hearing. Okay. Um, and I would, I would also say this, the, the, um, what you just said, the impression of what arbitration is has evolved over time. So there are horror stories of arbitration uh, cases in the past that have gone off the rails and have been very contentious between the club uh, and the player. Uh, there was a famous uh, situation with Tommy Salo, who was the goalie at the time with the New York Islanders. The New York Islanders general manager went on the stand and testified in the hearing uh, and said some pretty brutal things about Tommy with him sitting there. And as the story goes, I wasn't in the room, but as the story goes, Tommy uh, broke down in tears and was sobbing during the testimony, taking to heart everything the GM said about him, his character, and why he would never be a number one goalie and all the reasons why he doesn't deserve the money he's asking for. Um the rules have been refined over the years to make it very much an academic discussion. Okay. Right. What you're doing right now is you're taking a player and you're doing a search of comparable contracts. Um, and you may take a player statistically and uh, do a search plus or minus 30%. In all statistical categories, you'll get a wide universe of player, comparable players who fit within that universe. And then you'll do further filtering to that big universe to break it down to eight players or 10 players that are most comparable to the player who's filed for arbitration. Hmm. And the and the agent um, and the player's counsel are going to do that together. And... The club is going to do that. And uh, between the club and the player, there's going to be some overlap of, of similarly situated comparable players, right? Right. There will yeah. be players outside your universe 
that the club will try to bring into the case mm-hmm. because it's probably a player with a lower salary. And there might be players outside the universe on the player side who might be outside the search parameters, but only slightly. You might try to bring into the case because it's a contract that will help you. But you're having an academic discussion, not an emotional discussion. It is not admissible for the general manager these days to get up on the stand and to trash the player. It doesn't happen anymore. It's not admissible. It doesn't happen. All you're really doing is you're arguing over the numbers, over the stats, right? No character assassination. (laughs) Not at all. So what usually, you know, what an arbitration hearing, what, what actually happens during it is, it's actually very dry and 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 boring. I remember uh, in, you know, cases went to hearing much more often years out than they do now. Now it's very rare. But I remember having a player who uh, won a Stanley Cup. And uh, we uh, after we're in the offseason, we couldn't agree on a deal. And uh, we filed for arbitration. And here we are in arbitration and uh, me and the player and the GM actually went for dinner the night before together. (laughs) Right. So the hearings were in Toronto. We're in Toronto. We went to dinner. uh, We sat together, had a nice dinner, talked a little bit about the deal, like trying to negotiate a deal, trying to bridge the gap on term and money. And we just couldn't get there, but it was not, uh, I mean, they just want to cup together, you know, like, a month before, there was still that closeness there. We just couldn't agree on a deal, so we're like, okay, we'll let the uh, we'll let the arbitrator handle it. Well, the club had this lawyer uh, had an outside law firm presenting the case in arbitration, and this lawyer was uh, it was his first arbitration he'd ever done, and and. And what he did, and, and I'll never forget it, he had a, a blackboard up in the room and he had the comparable players. He wrote them down with a, um, uh, an erasable pen on this whiteboard and he wrote the names of the players down in order and he put the amount of money they were making in their contracts up and down. And then he got up during the hearing and he must have gone over to that whiteboard you know, no less than a hundred times, you know, referring. And, and he said the same thing over and over and over again. You know, the players should be ranked the way that I wrote them on the board, you know, and this is, and this is where the player fits. And, and, and I'm sitting there and the GM of the other team is sitting there and I get a text message from the GM as we're sitting there during the hearing. I have my phone underneath the table. The GM texts me and he said, if my guy goes to that board one more time, I'm going to strangle him. And I'm sitting there and I, I give a little elbow to my client and he's like, what? And I go here, read this. And uh, I showed him the text from the GM and we both looked over at the GM and we were both smiling and looking at him and he's going at us like this. Yep. I'm going to strangle that guy. <laughs> you know, so, it so it's really, not as contentious. It's not as uh, like acrimonious, I guess is the way. No, not really. There, there was another time where um, uh, 
we had also the night before the hearing had dinner with Mm -hmm. me, the player and the GM, we had dinner and uh, couldn't come to an agreement. We're down in the uh, conference level of the uh, hotel and you're using like a conference room as a hearing room. And the arbitrator came in and he goes in and he's setting up, he's taking out all his books and he's setting everything up for himself, you know, at this head table. And you have like a a U-shaped table where the player and his counsel and me will be on one side and the, the club and all their people and the league people will be on the other. And the arbitrator is sitting in the middle and, uh, uh, Everybody, everybody sits down. The arbitrator is just about to get started. And I got up and I walked over to the general manager and I tapped him on the shoulder and I said, excuse me, can I have a word with you outside? And we walked outside and the arbitrator is calling the case to start, but the agent isn't in the room and the general manager isn't in the room. (laughs) And, uh, And what we were doing was we were making a deal. Okay. Wow. All right. And we both, we made the deal and we walked into the room together and we said, uh, we've settled the case. We have a deal. <laughs> and the arbitrator packed everything up and uh, <laughs> off he goes. <laughs> well, you know what? Maybe it helped the process. You always have told me, Alan, the deadlines clear the mind. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I think, you know, you you take through and I I do want to talk about this a little bit as we get into contracts and that sort of thing as we're, we're talking about this. Um, you know, we often see like we see it with the trade deadline, we see it with um the start of free agency, we also see it with RFA signing a couple of days before training camp or a couple of days into training camp. Explain the deadlines clear the mind, especially as it pertains to the National Hockey League and being an agent in it. Do you sometimes know you're negotiating something in the middle of summer and you go, it's probably not going to get wrapped up for a couple more months because there's no deadline here? Sometimes. And, and, and sometimes becomes in other situations more often than not. Um, the, the function of a deadline is to create a, a, a critical stage, a pressure point in the negotiation. Mm-hmm. And when there's no pressure point, it seems that both sides tend to look at the next possible pressure point that exists as a time to put a further foot forward towards getting a deal done. So I'll give you an example. Um, A player, group two free agent with no rights to arbitration coming out of entry level um, can start negotiating his deal uh, with the team in July like you said, there's no pressure on either side to do anything. There's no games being played in July. There's nothing really happening in July. You'll have conversations with the general manager, maybe even daily conversations with the general manager. The media, you know, mostly are on vacation. So you'll have a couple of media people check in every once in a while. Hey, anything up? Anything going on? No, no, no. Okay. Now you've got the footsteps to training camp starting. You know, you hear them. Mm-hmm. There's no deal. Okay. Well, if there's no deal, the player is not coming to training camp. Right. Mm-hmm. So training camp opens. Now we've got the first day of camp. There is a pressure point around that opening of camp 
where we see deals get done for group two free agents uh, right around the opening of camp, the day camp opens where the players missed one day, maybe, or maybe the day after camp opens and that deal gets done. If that deal doesn't get done at that time, I can tell you right now that deal isn't getting done until the eve of the first regular season game, right? Training camp's gone because you've passed a pressure point and you're now going, you're jumping to the next one. Right. Um, If the season starts and there's no deal, right? There's much more pressure on both sides. Mm -hmm. The, uh, The team is probably missing a key player. And the player is missing paychecks. Yeah. Right. He's not getting paid while he's not playing. So you've now got a much more intense daily situation going on than what you had in July. Now, according to the CBA, a group two restricted free agent must be under contract by December 1. And if he's not under contract by September 1, he's not playing hockey that year, right? So that's the ultimate deadline with the ultimate pressure point. And if you're already missing games, there's a great likelihood after missing games, if both sides are truly entrenched in their own positions, that that can go all the way to December 1. Now, December 1 is the poison pill, right? Both sides are are at mutually assured destruction. Yeah. You go past December 1, the team loses the player for the year. The player loses a year from his career. The player has no deal. And we go do it all over again, you know, through a summer with no pressure, you know, until we get to the next training camp where the next pressure point is. So you're going to go from December 1 until September and the opening of camp, right? We don't That's a really long have, time, long no, time. There, now, there have been a couple of players that have actually um, uh, withheld their services and, and missed an entire season. It has happened historically. Mm-hmm. It's rare. You know, I think of um, Alexi Ashen. I think of Michael yeah. Pekka. I think of Michael Pekka. It has happened. Um, but it's extremely, extremely rare. And then you th- you think of the situation that you probably remember very well in Toronto with uh, William Nylander, and and he signed, uh, you know, what was it, within a half an hour of the December one deadline, it went right down to the last thirty minutes. I was at my ma- I was at the mall with my girlfriend at the time, watching my phone, going, "Please God, make this happen." Right. And then that was the ultimate pressure point with the ultimate deadline with mutually assured destruction pointing both, you know, at both people, everybody involved and it ultimately got done, but it, but it didn't get done all the way to, to that point. But look at the pressure points that that particular negotiation went through from the opening of camp to the start of the regular season, all the way to December one. The stress is intense. As an agent, do you struggle sometimes handling the stress on behalf of your client? Like, I can't imagine for William Nylander's agent that that was a particularly fun time. Like, William, obviously not, but it's tough. It It, it is tough. And that's where, um, you know, people get to see if you're really 
uh, have conviction behind your position. Mm. Because if you don't really have a conviction behind it, you're more apt to um, um, make a deal earlier on in the process. But if you really feel and you really believe in what you your value is and what you're worth, um, that's when you don't feel the pressure. You you feel principled, and there are a lot of people. Everybody's different. Mm-hmm. There are you know it's it's once you're missing training camp, it's a very difficult thing for players to do. You're training with everybody. You've got you know 15, 20 NHL players on the ice with you. Everybody leaves to their NHL cities and all of a sudden you're alone, you know, and here's the worst part. Every single day, whoever you talk to, whether it's your parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, friends, what's going on with you? Any updates? And you're asked that question 20 times a day. Yeah, it's it's a very and I've been in that situation many times. It's a, it's a very difficult time where, and, and I always say to players, it's like, here's the deal. The, um, here it is. The pen is in your hand, not my hand. Hmm. This pen is in your hand, right? We're in this together. We've gone through a lot together in coming to what you believe your value is. But at any time, any time, you can take this pen and you can sign your name on the paper. It's yours, not mine. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I think, you know, what would be your advice for agents for stress relief? <laughs> like, what do you like, you know, because Alan, you do work all the time. Like you do work no matter when I need to get in touch with you, forget players. Uh, if I needed, if I needed to text you at midnight, I think, I feel like I'd get a message back within the hour. Um, although I try not to do that. Um, I, I, I always wondered about that stress level. I mean, it must get to you from time to time. What do you do? And what do you tell younger agents, people getting into the business about stress, about handling that kind of pressure? Learn to live with it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Learn to live with it. I mean, you're not going to, if you, if you don't feel the stress and pressure and the weight of the world on your shoulders, uh, in, in, you know, I always saw, uh, and I still do representing players as a sacred trust between you and the player. And, uh, that carries a certain weight in and of itself. Mm -hmm. If you're not prepared to carry that weight around, go do something else. Okay. So just live with it. All the yeah, time. The last thing I'm going to do is complain about it. Uh, and, and when I do hear people complaining about it, it kind of rubs me the wrong way. This is the life you choose to live, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, to, to say like, oh, I, I'm under so much pressure. It's so difficult for me. Um, and I've heard other agents say that. And I'm like, well, then, you know, go do something else if that's not what you want to do. But don't right. complain about it. <laughs> You're tough. <laughs> um, I, I got to say, uh, so th- lastly, and I think there's a couple of things here. Um, public relations, marketing, social media, they all kind of play in together, right? Yeah. How you are in front, and we saw this um, with a reporter and a player in Edmonton earlier this year, 
with Leon Dreisaitl. You know, you, you, you're talking to these same reporters if you're a star player every day. And when things aren't going well, things can get stressful. You, you have players that want to have Instagram accounts. They want to have Twitter. They've got some opinions. Maybe they want to voice them, but they can be taken the wrong way. The team doesn't do well. They might get a bunch of abusive tweets that they never asked for. Um, how do you handle the public relations side? How do you prep a player for that? How to speak to people and how to manage their social media? Because I can imagine that's been a big challenge. Sure. And, and for some players, I have said to them, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pull out your phone, pull out their phone. Okay. I want you to show me your Twitter app and your Instagram app and your Snapchat. And they showed, I go, okay, delete, delete, delete. It's gone. Don't ever put it on your phone again. Because, because if I'm there saying that, I know that what they're reading on social media is malignant Mm -hmm. and it's and and it eats away at your soul it eats away at your confidence and uh you you know and i kind of put myself into that situation i don't care what people you know say about me on social media Mm -hmm. um i kind of kind of like it's it's kind of a running gag with me where i'll just go down on like uh block 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 i'm not (laughs) I'm not, I'm not pissed at what anybody's saying. I kind of take it. It's funny. I block somebody and they're like, Hey, I got blocked by Walsh, you know, and I didn't even say anything. You know, if you actually go to what the guy said, you know, he's basically, you know, threatening me and my family. Like, I, I didn't say anything. And it, every once in a while I'll get a, uh, I'll get an email from somebody like Mr. Walsh. I just want to start off by apologizing for the horrible things I said about you. Um, uh, I've been blocked for several years. If you please unblock me, here's my, uh, here's my Twitter handle. I promise to always be respectful going forward. And a couple of times I've unblocked the guy and I've sent an email back saying, here you go, pal, you're on probation. (laughs) (laughs) So it's all about your stomach, right? Your ability to handle and everybody's different, right? Exactly. And, and, you know, players, um, you get off the ice, you lose a game. You may not be happy with the way you played. You, uh, you go on Twitter and you see the most unbelievable hate and vitriol coming the player's way. It takes a very special kind of character who can be able to read through that stuff and not let it get to them. You know, so there's that aspect to it. Sure. But the other aspect is um, getting into an argument with a fan on Twitter or, or Instagram is never going to end well for the player ever. You just can't do it. And, and you have to many times, especially younger guys, talk to them about what's appropriate, what's acceptable, what's not. And, you know, if you have any doubts before you hit the send button, call me, text me, take a screenshot of it and send it to me. And I'll give you an opinion right away as to whether that's something that should go out or not. You know, so that's another aspect of it. Now, another and another very important part of social media is it's a great tool to promote your causes, mm-hmm. you know, charities you work with. Um, ideas or concepts you believe in, 
Uh, and it's a tremendous tool in that regard. You know, a player is working with a charity and they want you to uh, tweet support, tweet about a uh, charity golf tournament that people can attend, tweet about a banquet, tweet about a breakfast. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a sports celebrity breakfast in Montreal. They have them in different parts of Canada and the U.S. You know, all that is is great. So there's a promotion aspect to it as, as well. And I think there's a um, a public relations aspect where players are wanting to reveal um, more and more something about who they are, what makes them tick, what their passions are, what their preferences are, music they like, clothes they like, um, uh, cars they like, uh, and so forth. And that's that's great. Um, the the NFL and the NBA have been wonderful at from a league standpoint, mm-hmm. creating superstars. Yes. That's what yes. they do. They create their superstars. And the NHL has done everything in their power to the very day to prevent the creation of superstars. I can tell you from working with NHL players now for 27 years that NHL players are the most fascinating, the most compelling, the most incredible individuals, especially when you get to know their backstories. But you turn on a game and you get nothing. Mm -hmm. You turn on an NFL game and the whole pregame is about promoting the superstars so you start to care about them and how that game is going to be played and how this player is going to perform in the game. And the NHL attitude is still to this day, we're going to promote the the logos and the crest on the front of the jersey. And any players that step out of um, the rubric they've established and want to in any way promote the name on the back of the jersey, that's wrong. That's bad. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not that's not how we do things in hockey, and it's it's that attitude that has really held back the game, the growth of the game, because the more people get to know individual players and relate to them, and and create, you know, superstars drive the game. Yes, and no question. The, the more superstars that are in the game and being promoted as such. The, the 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 bigger game we're gonna have yeah and uh and and it's not there and it's and it's the league's philosophy it's Gary's philosophy we don't want superstars and it's it and you know since Gary came to the NHL you know 1991 92 uh I think that attitude more than anything else has held this game back from what it could be well, and I, I think about, Alan, we've talked about this on the Steve Dangle podcast many times about the way the pregames are structured, the way that the NHL talks about, it's about like, even in the all-star game, it's the NHL crest. It's not right. even, you know, it's not, there's no all-star on it. It just says NHL crest and it's boring. Um, and, and there doesn't seem to be a fun angle to it. And I think, um, you know, the last true stu- superstar, true superstar was Wayne Gretzky in my mind. I'm talking about a superstar on the level of, of Michael Jordan. It was you even they even had commercials together. 
and transcends have, the game. Someone who transcends the game. Bingo. And it's nothing against the guys that are here because they could. Uh, somebody with Alexander Ovechkin's personality can do pretty much whatever they want. Uh, PK Subban's got a huge personality. You can have, you've got great, um, colorful individuals. What, at what point, Alan, do you think the players take control of this? Uh, and as an agent, how do you advise when a player wants to step out of the mold a little bit? I think we're going in that direction. Okay. It's been, it's been slow going. Uh, it's something that I've long advocated for behind the scenes, um, somewhat unsuccessfully so far. Mm-hmm. But I'm not giving up the fight because that's the only way we're going to get the game to where we want it to be. Um, the players have compelling stories. Those stories need to be told mm-hmm. and they need to be told in a way that the fans can easily consume and identify with. And it's long past time to do that. And once we do that, I believe the NHL will take where it, the business is right now to a completely new and different level. It's all about the players. The players are the game. Without the players, there is no game. And, and it's like from the NHL side, that is the, 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 the best kept, worst kept secret. They don't want people to focus on the players. And that's really um, where we all need to be mm-hmm. and where the game needs to go to. Yes, logos have a place. But really, it's the players inside the logos, inside the jerseys that matter. That's right. Yeah, the, the, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones wouldn't be great names if there weren't great bands behind them, right? Exactly. Um, okay, and, and so lastly, when we talk about endorsements, everybody's really interested in endorsements. Like, and it's always fascinating when we talk about it on the, on the, on the Steve Dangle podcast, because you can, if you're a hockey player in Canada, you can endorse pretty much anything. Uh, John Tavares, I believe, was doing coconut water and bread at some point. Uh, you know, Sidney Crosby and Nathan McKinnon are, are big with Tim Hortons. When you've got a client, do you go out as an agent and try to find them endorsement deals? Do they come to you? And how do you know that one makes sense for a client and one doesn't fit into a personal brand, doesn't fit into a personal brand? How do you even handle that? Yeah, uh, I can. we have a marketing group inside octagon that does amazing work and between what they do and what i do on my own i'm always out there looking for deals on the marketing side um we've done some uh great work for commercials uh jonathan drua has uh, been in the sonnet commercial uh sonnet insurance yes um mark andre Fleury did the apple commercial where he's doing the handstand yes uh, with with mark stone so you want to identify with the right brands. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a commercial that Jonathan Huberto did in Quebec that was uh, very well received a number of years ago. Um, Marc-Andre Fleury did a commercial in Pittsburgh with uh, UPMC uh, where his wife became literally the star of the commercial. And uh, Mark was uh, uh, changing his, uh, his baby's diapers and had the uh, dirty diaper on a goalie stick and was using the goalie stick to put it into the trash in the bedroom. And it was, it was all done in really good taste. So obviously you want to stay away from controversial products and Mm -hmm. controversial issues, but uh, going out there and, and I I believe that, um, and, and I, I don't want to pat myself on the back too hard here, but I believe that 
when you sit with brands and talk passionately about players, mm-hmm. um, that is infectious. And I have found that from an initial meeting, many times we've been able to get to um, uh, a completed deal, whether it's uh, for a brand doing a commercial or appearances or social media work. Um, because of the passion that you have for your client and and being able to convince, because we're all in the art in the business of convincing people um, of how good this can all work together. Wow. Okay. Well, it pays to have an agent. Alan, uh, unbelievably in-depth. And I think, I, I mean, for all the questions that I had, completely answered, and I think for most people, uh, answered, uh, uh, unbelievable. Um, obviously, and I just want to ask you one quick thing. You're out for dinner. You're with your wife. It's Valentine's day. And a lot of people might be listening to the show on Valentine's day. Cause it's a couple of days from now. Yeah. And you guys haven't spent a lot of time together. You've been in and out town client calls you. Do you let them wait an hour? Or do you pick up the phone? Pick up the phone. No hesitation at all. And your wife's good with that. Well, uh, I should probably say something here. Uh, I've been married now for 22 years. Uh, I've been with my wife for 25 years plus. Uh, she knows all my shit by now. <laughs> she, it, it's the it's the it's the life that we uh, both signed up for. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to make, uh, you know, we have some friends who are really good at, uh, you know, they're, they're booking their vacation in 2023 already. I, I mean, I can't even fathom, you know, booking a vacation more than two or three weeks in advance, if that, and, uh, you know, we very much live our lives a little bit by the seat of our pants, uh, with our hair on fire, but that's <laughs> the way it, it is. Um, but I also think if a, if a player is calling me you know, Valentine's day at night. Um, they're probably not calling just to say hello. There's probably something up Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'll take the call and I have nothing wrong saying, Hey, is it, is it urgent? If not, no, I'm out for dinner with my wife. I'll call you back in, in two hours. Right. But I answer the phone. I take the call. And if the player says, Hey, it's really urgent. I need to talk to you right now. I'll get up and I'll walk outside. Wow. Okay. So that's the life, not as glamorous maybe as it seems from the outside, but rewarding. It's the greatest job in the world. There it is. Besides podcasting, of course, right? I mean, like that's, we got to rank up there too. Yeah, just don't tell anybody. Okay. <laughs> Alan, thank you for your your candor on this one. This has been uh, really enlightening. And, and uh, I hope that if you are a, a potential future agent listening to this, that you're inspired um, and make sure that um, before you get your, uh, your internship uh, opportunity with Alan, that you're not blocked, okay? We wanna make sure that you're not one of those people.